This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. I knew leaving wasn't an option, so my choice was to either continue with this space of cognitive dissonance, literally losing my sanity and having my brain snap, or buy in. And so I bought in. Wow. Welcome to The Real Real, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Real Real Podcast. This episode, I need to give a giant trigger warning for. We dive into sexual assault we dive into rape, we dive into sex trafficking. And so if you do not want to listen to an episode about that, I am letting you know now, don't listen to this episode. However, I think it is such an important episode. And it is such an important message, especially for women, but honestly, for anyone. So if that is not something that triggers you, and you are able to listen to this episode, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. I had Alexandra Stevenson on my podcast, and her story is one that is unfortunately common for a lot of women. And I wish I could say it wasn't. I wish I could say it was this rare instance that never happens to anybody, but it's not. It's something that happens to millions of women, and it's something that I think we need to open our eyes to as uncomfortable as it is. That's why I'm saying it's such an important episode for you to listen to. Alexandra is the founder of this nonprofit organization called The Laughing Survivor. She also was sexually assaulted at a young age. She was trafficked later on. And trafficking, we talk about this, but it is not always being abducted. In most cases, you're not abducted. You know, you physically are not bound However, mentally, that is a totally different story. And we talk about what it looks like to be trafficked and how she got into it. And I didn't even ask half the questions I wanted to ask. I need to have her on for a part two if this is something you're interested in. But this cause, like helping solve and prevent human trafficking and sex trafficking is something that I've always been interested in. I've donated to a bunch of organizations that do that. It's something that I am very passionate about. And I never talk about it, which I should, but it makes me sick to my stomach. It's one of the causes and the issues that I am the most passionate about. So when I got the email for Alexandra to come on my show, I said, absolutely, I would love to have her on because I know how important of a message this is. So she is now an anti-trafficking activist. She's the survivor of human trafficking, and she also has done so much work to prevent this from happening and also to educate people, not just to prevent it, but to educate because I think with education comes prevention. She has a lot of qualifications as well. She has her diploma. She has her community and justice services with honors. She has her bachelor of social science and criminology. She has her postgraduate certification in victimology with honors, and she has a master of science in psychology. She did her thesis on an issue that we talk about in this podcast as well, We talk about sexual empowerment. We talk about OnlyFans. We talk about her situation, her childhood, the way that victims are in a criminal justice system. Like we talk about so many different questions or so many different topics. And I could literally do a million parts on this. I honestly hope that she starts a podcast because each of these topics that we touched on could make a million parts of an episode. I think it's very nuanced and we talk about that as well. But It's such an important conversation to have. I do need to obviously put a major trigger warning on it because it is some very heavy stuff that we get into. But episodes like this make me feel like this is why I started my podcast because I want to talk about these things and I want to give a platform to these things. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode or I hope it educates you, I guess I should say. And I think this is one of those episodes that I would really encourage you to share because I think it's so important to talk about. So anyways, listen to this episode fully through. I would love to know your thoughts on this. I would love for this to start a conversation with your friends and family. And let's welcome Alexandra to the show. Hello, Alexandra. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah, very excited to have you on. I know we were talking before we started recording, but this is a topic that I think is super, super important. And so when I got the email that you wanted to be on my podcast, I really wanted to share it. And so I wanted to first start off by saying that you have overcome a lot. Like you definitely have overcome a lot in your life. And I imagine that it's probably a difficult conversation to have. But I wanted to go back to kind of the beginning and talk about your childhood. So how would you describe your childhood? Like, was it a normal upbringing? Or what was it like, like in the very early days, like elementary school, Alexandra? That's a really fun question. So I was raised in a quote unquote, normal family, you know, middle class suburbia, I would say the American, I'm Canadian. So the Canadian dream type thing, parents together, I had an older brother, I actually had an older half brother as well. But he's quite a bit older than me. So I was really just raised myself and my older brother. In fact, they filmed The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. You know that movie? They yeah. filmed it around the corner from my house when I was a kid. So very much the, you know, picturesque suburban neighborhood. And I, you know, did some sports, did some arts and crafts, tried to find what I was into as kids who, like every kid does, you know, what are you into? And, and are you sporty or are you artsy or are you whatever? And I really found what I was into around the age of 11 or 12 when I found advocacy. So, which is not necessarily what someone would consider normal, a normal child yeah. or preteen interest. But I had a teacher who read our class a story about a boy in Toronto, actually, and his name was Craig Kielberger. And he had read a story himself about another boy in Pakistan named Iqbal Masi. And Iqbal Masi had been a child who had been exploited uh, in child labor. And when he spoke out about it, he was shot and killed. Now, when Craig read about this, he was moved to found an organization called Free the Children, which later mm -hmm. became We Charity, which was behind a massive children helping children movement across the globe, really. Now, when I first heard about it, it was still Free the Children. It was very tiny. He was like Craig and his brother, and I can't remember exactly, six or eight friends or something. And myself and two friends decided to found our own chapter of Free the Children. And we went around collecting signatures for a petition and money for school and health kits to send overseas to kids who had been freed from child labor. I really found like my niche, like my thing. I loved speaking out. I loved that I could advocate and help people I didn't even know. And that the mm. world suddenly got really, really big. It got kind of scary, but I really focused on kids can do stuff. Like we don't just have to be told what to do. We can do stuff too. So I was a part of a, I think, I can't remember if that was my grade seven or eight year in Ontario. The Ontario government wanted the kids to like choose their favorite right because children have like the 10 rights of a child. And we were supposed to choose our favorite right. And so we organized and got stickers printed that said, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. I believe they said all rights for all children. And it was a pushback against why should we have to choose a right that we like the most? We all deserve yeah. rights. And we all deserve equal rights. So here I am, this little advocate. You know, I'm skipping school dances to door knock and get collect signatures. I'm probably... You know, my parents are puffed up with pride and, and their friends are looking over in some envy of like, oh, wow, like you seem to have the golden child of a daughter there. Wow. And I was really just on this really great path until. Yeah. So then tell me when you went from, you know, knocking on doors, you were a strong advocate. And then when your life kind of turned and when did everything change for you? So I was... 13 or 14. So I had a good few strong years of advocacy work. And when I was 13 or 14, my best friend's uncle began sexually assaulting me. And that wasn't one incident. It was many incidents. And it lasted until I was 17 or 18. And it was just continuous. And it changed the trajectory of my life. Now, there's not a movie montage where I suddenly started wearing black eyeliner and, you know, black clothes and, and became this troubled child that everyone would be able to pick out from a mile away was screaming for help. I just started slipping away from my advocacy work. Those friends found a new group of friends. Mind you, this is around teenagehood. Parents expect this to happen. 
So there was no really glaring red flags on the outside. And part of the problem was I didn't see what was happening to me as abuse. I Mm -hmm. saw it as I was a worldly and mature young teenager who an attractive older man was interested in. And you were 13 when it I began. was 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I mean, that is so hard. And especially looking back on it, I'm sure because like you said, in the moment, you think of yourself as mature and an adult or, you know, I, I remember when I was that young, you always think you're older than you are. <laughs> and now I look back at myself at that age or I look at other kids that age and I'm like, oh, my God, you are literally a baby. Like, you are a child. Yes. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today, as it should, with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet. Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, "When I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind." Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type "Real Real" under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Airs tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream, it is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 450 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration. And according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. I think part of the problem, and this is, of course, hindsight, right? So I'm not thinking this during the experience, but part of the problem was I had been taught sexual assault was no means no. And it looked like someone fighting and screaming, trying, like it looked like a fight. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't my experience because I was so desperate to fit in. Being a young advocate didn't exactly endear me to my peers, right? Like I was not the cool kid. Okay. I was skipping mm-hmm. school dances to get signatures. Like I had buck teeth and round glasses and hairy arms. Like I was not the cool kid. So when this attractive older man seemed to 
be interested in me, there wasn't me fighting and screaming. The problem was part of me, more subconsciously, but it grew to more consciously, knew something wasn't right. So as I slipped away from my advocacy work, I started smoking weed and doing mushrooms. And at some point I was introduced to ketamine and ecstasy. And I always kind of did what was in front of me. I really landed on meth and I was doing meth fairly regularly when I was, oh, by the time I was about 19, certainly by the time I was 20 years old. Wow. You're an adult at that point. Yep. Are your parents wondering like, what's going on? Or from the outside, were you still okay? Or were you still putting up, you know, this front that everything was okay? My parents split when I was, goodness, I think about 18 or 19. So in the later years of my teenagehood, they were going through their own issues, which I'm sure distracted them a little bit. So I stayed in school. I graduated high school with good to really good marks. I was always a bright kid. So I had good marks. There wasn't suddenly like I started failing or I dropped out or anything. Yeah. I had a steady boyfriend from the age of 16 to about 19, just before I turned 19, whom I will say my dad didn't love because he had a shaved head and his ears pierced and whatever else. But he was a steady boyfriend. So they weren't super worried about all that much. And when I graduated high school, I worked in the bar industry for a little bit. And then I got a job managing a tanning salon. So while maybe they were like, you do seem to keep some strange hours. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I was maintaining a full-time job. I would still show up and have conversations with them. They were now living in separate houses. I had moved in with my mom after breaking up with the long-term boyfriend. We had been living on our own, moved back in with my mom. But there was nothing that was like, giant red flag. Oh my God, we need to stage an intervention or something like that. Yeah. And at the time, I know you said like you knew something was wrong, like even earlier, but like you didn't express it necessarily. When were you able to look back and realize, you know, what had happened? Or when were you able to get out of that? Like, how did you manage to get out of it? And did anything else? Sorry, a lot of questions. But did anything (laughs) else happen? as well in those years, like when you were a teenager? Like, were there any other things happening in your life at that point? There was a lot of things happening. My best friend, whose one uncle was sexually assaulting me, her other uncle was actually murdered. And this was a family that like, I considered her family, my family, I spent more time with them than my own family. So we had kind of converged around that dealing with police and funeral and and all of those things. And that's when the sexual assault from the other uncle really ramped up. And it was about a year or two later, sexual assault continued, but I didn't see them as much. And it was, I can't remember now exactly how it came out, but it came out that two other girls in that family, cousins of my friend had also been assaulted by their uncle. By the same person or by? By the same person. Okay. And that to me was a very quick, like, almost a slap in the face of like, you're not special. This was Mm -hmm. not you. And at this point, I'm 18 or somewhere in and around there. And I have enough knowledge to be able to kind of remove myself from the chaos that that had been and go, that was a problem. He was in his 30s. I was 13. And now that I'm 18 and I'm looking like you were just saying, I'm, I was only 18. I look at 18 year olds now as babies. But like at 18, I was looking at 13 year olds and going, oh, that is not a sexual being. That was not okay. And I got a call one night from my friend who had also been assaulted. And she said, you know, you need to come because the man who assaulted us he is looking for custody of his daughters and they were becoming close to that age that he had begun sexually assaulting me. And it it was time we did something with our information. So that turned into us going to the police and then kind of it all coming out and that every last little nugget of me trying to hold on to maybe it was consensual, maybe I was mature, maybe any of that. It was just someone, you know, the police really shone a spotlight on that as like, no, this is abuse. That was assault. Mm -hmm. That was not okay. And my life, which I had pretty good 
handle on. I was doing drugs, but I was very much like partying on the weekend planned with recovery time. It wasn't all the time. It was not necessarily saying it was okay, but it was controlled, spiraled out of control. And I started doing, you know, like I said, I was doing meth and I started doing it all the time. I still maintained my job because I was very good at compartmentalizing. But now I'm entrenched in the criminal justice system, which is probably a whole other podcast for why that's a disaster as a victim witness. But now I'm just trying to find a way to manage it all. I started managing it by doing a lot of meth and sinking deeper into that underground people who were also doing meth world, which is how I met the guy who ended up trafficking me. Wow. I commend you and also the other girls for bravery that it takes to just come forward and recognize that and want to, you know, even like share your experience. Because I know that the criminal justice system with rape victims, sexual assault victims, it re-triggers you. It's usually places the blame on you. It's he said, she said. It's hard to believe. So even coming forward is so brave. So I think one props to you and the other two women. Like I can't imagine how hard that is, especially at that young of an age. After that had happened to you and after you were going through this criminal justice system, was the process of kind of reliving that or kind of recounting that, is that what kind of made you more susceptible to be trafficked in the future? Like, Or do you think it was just like two separate incidences? Like, How did it lead to that, I guess? When there's trauma on trauma, I think very rarely are they separate. Whether you realize they're connected at the time or it takes hindsight of whatever distance to realize how one fed the other or led to the other or created a landscape for the other to exist or whatever it is, trauma often begets more trauma, unfortunately. I think becoming entrenched in the criminal justice system as a victim, I learned very quickly that that man didn't actually assault me or commit a crime against me. He committed a crime against the state that I was a witness to because that's what happens. You may be the victim. But you're not the one who charges him, the state Mm. or the crown in Canada charges. And you're a witness to the crime that he committed against the government, basically. It's how it felt to me. And it was, you're going to be here at this time. No, I don't care if you have vacation plans or work or anything. This is when the court date is. And then two days before, oh, actually, it's been canceled. It's in three months now. I don't care if you reschedule. Like, you're just on this leash. You have no control. And that lack of autonomy for so long. I had created this story in my head that this is what was happening. I was in a relationship, maybe a clandestine one, but a relationship. I had full control of the story because it was inside me and I didn't share it, right? It was between me and that man. And then once it came out and it like came out in such a manner within the justice system, I had no control over the story. I had no control over what people were calling it and how they were making it out to be and the questions they were asking me and the details they wanted. And that I was supposed to be somewhere and when and all of that. And what it turned into, and again, this is hindsight, not something I was consciously thinking, but what it turned into was a desperate need for control, a Mm -hmm. desperate need to basically stick my finger up at the system, you know, so to speak. I did it the right way. I went to the police and now I feel like I'm being brutalized. I didn't feel like I was being brutalized during the assaults. I knew something was wrong and it absolutely messed me up. But I didn't feel like I was being brutalized because I was in control of the story. And now I felt like I was being brutalized. And so I got really mad and I really kind of stuck my finger up at the system and at anything that was like, this is what you should do. And I was like, yeah, no, I did it. I did the thing right. And it sucks. So I'm going to do the things that you probably shouldn't do. So when the town meth dealer shows interest in me, I'm like, yes, yes, this is a great choice. I'm absolutely going to date you because screw the system, right? Like I did it right. It didn't benefit me. And so many people feel that way too today. You know, you think that you're doing the right thing. People always say like when something happens, like go to the police, go, you know, put the person behind bars, like you have to go and say it. And then you do. And they end up abusing you as well. Like it's horrible. And I haven't experienced it, thankfully, but I know 
you know, I've heard interviews, I've spoken to people. You obviously hear about it in the media sometimes, but it's absolutely horrible. So I'm sure that you're doing a lot of work though now to like try to make it better too. From what I can, a lot of that feels shallow. But Mm -hmm. yes, that is certainly a lofty goal of mine is to be able to help the system and help at least, if nothing else, help people understand that it is not the victim's responsibility to go to the police if they don't want to. That may be their option. And I support fully if that is the right choice for them. But I think a lot of people are like, well, if you don't go to the police, this person will continue to harm and that's on you. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not on the victim. That is on the person choosing to harm. We don't Mm -hmm. need to put ourselves in harm's way. If that's what's right for us, we can. But for some people, it's not. And I think if we can at least start there, that's a good place. Yeah, definitely. Especially like don't put anything else on the victim. So how did you meet the man then that did end up trafficking you? And what did that look like? Because I think there's a shocking statistic of how many people get trafficked every single day. And you always hear like, this is a top city of where people get trafficked. And this is how many millions of people are getting trafficked every day. And sometimes you think like, what? Like, is it happening right under my nose? Like, how are this many people being trafficked? And I think when you think of trafficking, you think, you know, if you see the movie Taken, it's like, you know, you get abducted and you're in this room with a bunch of men. And that does happen. Like that 100% happens. However, I know that that's not the case for everyone. So what did it look like for you? And like, how did you end up getting trafficked? So you took the words, some of the words right out of my mouth there using the example of taken, because that is what a lot of people still think of as trafficking, right? It's one of two things. People think it's either that thing where you're snatched off the street or from under a bed or, you know, whatever it is in another country, of course, and sold to some organized crime ring and Mm -hmm. put in a glass box and sold like a doll. And that certainly does happen. The other thing, people just have a general idea of it's that thing that happens to those people over there, right? There's not a lot of ownership of this is happening right under our noses, like you said. So trafficking absolutely does happen right under our noses. And what we need to do first is realize that human trafficking is A, not human smuggling. So we're not talking shipping containers over country borders. We're talking Mm -hmm. about compelling or coercing a person to provide labor or services. So it could be like labor trafficking or say commercial sex. And you can coerce them through physical manipulation, overt or psychological manipulation. So if someone is coercing or manipulating you into providing labor or sex and Mm -hmm. they're benefiting from it, trafficking. So when we think of it like that, it can be something as hidden For example, as in my case, I'll use myself as an example. I start dating the town meth dealer. We're having fun. We're partying. And then one day he turns to me and he's like, hey, we're kind of doing more drugs than we're selling. We need to supplement our income. Would you want to help me? And at this point, I'm like, absolutely. Like, we are Bonnie and Clyde. I am your wifey. We are partners. Let's get into this together, right? I don't want to be beholden to you. I want to be a partner to you. So... What was decided was that I would distract people while we were at house parties or maybe bars, and he would see what he could steal, and we'd be able to pawn that afterwards. I'm using my body, distracting people in a sexual way while he's stealing. Now, as that progressed, it turned more into, hey, I want to take something bigger. I need you to take so-and-so into the bedroom and distract them for longer. And I'm going, well, hold on a second. Like this feels outside the realm of me being kind of ornamental and not necessarily having to be physical or fully physical about it. You're really asking something that feels beyond what I'm comfortable with. And when I first pushed back, I remember him saying like, oh, you don't want to do that? Do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them? And I was like, what? I've been stealing from them. Like, wait a second. But he was the one with clout, right? Like I was 
just the girl, just the wifey. He was the one who'd been in and out of jail. He was the one everyone in our town knew the name of. I was the girl who the rumors were that I'd been passed around or, you know, I was a girl in a drug scene doesn't exactly hold a lot of weight. So Mm -hmm. I knew I wouldn't be believed. And once he had that acquiescence from me that like, uh uh-oh, I don't know how to get out of here. He really had no barred from there. Like we were at a strip club one day and all of a sudden my feet were lifted off the floor. Like I was lifted off the floor. My feet were no longer touching the ground and I was dumped very unceremoniously on a strip club stage. And the last words I hear in my ear are, don't get down until you've made me some money. Wow. And I remember so clearly being up on that stage and there are people around me. There's men in the audience. There's my boyfriend, the bouncers, all these people that cranky other woman on the stage who's like, I'm sorry, why am I sharing my stage with this person? And not once did it occur to me to ask for help or to say, I don't want to be here or to climb off the stage or anything of the sort. The only thing that occurred to me was I better make some money or he's going to hurt me because our relationship had become violent long before that. And oh my God, they're all going to see my small boobs. And I was really embarrassed. Wow. So I think that what you said is like a good picture of you weren't in a cage, you know, in a physical cage. You could technically walk up and leave, but Mm -hmm. you're so mentally caged and you're so I think people don't understand in abusive relationships like all the time. It's like, well, why don't you just leave? It's like you can't like, can you describe that? I guess so for people that are thinking that like, well, why can't you just get up and go away? Like, why did you feel like you couldn't do that? Several reasons. One, trauma bond. So Mm -hmm. if you think of a trauma bond as a rope and all the different manipulations that the person who's creating the trauma bond uses as different strands of that rope, the more they use, the stronger that rope. So they use everything from, you know, the perceived inability to escape the like hot and cold, the perceived kindness. So once you are in this damaging relationship, abusive relationship, you know, I suddenly felt like, oh, he only hit me with an open hand instead of a fist. Like that was really nice of him. That's messed up. That's really messed up. The other bit is something I like to teach about, which is cognitive dissonance. And so that is this idea. There's a mental conflict when your beliefs don't line up with your actions. So I'm stuck in this place where I'm going, well, hold on a second. I'm a good, quote unquote, girl from a good, quote unquote, family. I'm not a, quote unquote, stripper, right? Like there's this good and bad. And I was an advocate, but like I'm really trying to be this bad girl because I'm angry at the damn world. And I really made my bed here. Like I knew he didn't show up as, you know, Mr. Nice Guy and then turn into, oh my God, he's actually a drug dealer. Like, He had just gone out of jail when I met him. I knew exactly about his reputation. So there was this thing where I could either exist in this space where I was constantly telling myself, you don't belong here. This isn't your life. You know, you're a good girl. You were a ballerina. You like all of these things. But while my body is engaging in commercial sex and I can have this sort of split. And I honestly think had I continued with that, and denying that I wanted to be there, I would have snapped in whatever. I don't know what that would have looked like, but my brain would have snapped because mm-hmm. I would have had to recognize then that I was completely trapped. I was not free by any stretch of the imagination. I was a prisoner of this life of him and I had zero freedom. And I had gone about this with this need for autonomy and this need for freedom. So I'd gotten myself into a situation that had even less freedom than I had ever experienced. And so, I had to buy in. To save my sanity, I had to buy in. I had to believe that I wanted to be there. So I would loudly proclaim to any friends who were like, "Uh, we seem to be making some interesting choices. You know, are you safe? Is Chris, is he treating you okay? I'd turn to them and be like, uh, yeah, you're just jealous because I party for a living. Like I make so much more money than you and I party and I have fun. Like I am 
sexually free, right? Like I'm empowered, you're a prude. Like who cares? Sex is the same as shaking hands with someone when you meet them. I'm using my body, you use your body, like I'm free. I really had to build on this narrative for me to exist in that space. And I did it for as long as I could. Like I had to believe that that was my truth. So not only was I saying it out loud to people, I was trying to make myself believe it as well. And that is why I didn't just leave because Mm -hmm. I knew I couldn't just leave. Part of me absolutely knew there was no leaving. I did try and break up with him once earlier on in our relationship with the whole, it's not you, it's me. You know, you're a great guy. I'm holding you back, blah, 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 blah. And he showed me a newspaper clipping of a girl who had been brutalized. She had been, if I remember correctly, thrown through a glass table, raped and bleach poured on her. And he said, whether this is true or not, I don't know. But he told me that's what happened to the last girl who tried to break up with me. So I knew leaving wasn't an option. So my choice was to either continue with this space of cognitive dissonance, literally losing my sanity and having my brain snap or buy in. And so I bought in. Wow. And I mean, that's so scary. And, you know, like, I cannot imagine seeing that and how that feels. I know that there's always like, you know, when you're doing that, and you're in the middle of it, and you like you said that you're telling yourself that you're empowered. Were there any moments when your friends would check on you? And would you try to like, kind of bring them into what you were doing? Or it was always just you and him? Like, was it always like a two person situation or were you trying to bring other people into like whatever you guys were doing to like make more money, for example? It's a hard question to answer because it means speaking a truth that is not complimentary of myself. But if I am able to share that and it means someone else feels less shame than you know, there it is. I think we have this idea of what a victim is and who a victim is and what they should look like and how much empathy they deserve based on what they did or didn't do. And Mm -hmm. we can't see it as like good or bad victim. If someone's been victimized, they've been victimized. Now people will do things to survive or make bad choices. And I think there's a quote that says, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge others by their actions. So did I intend to ever hurt my friends or anything? Absolutely not. But my actions by saying, hey, why don't you come party with us and kind of see if she would be like into it. I never said, hey, do you want to come make money doing this? But it was basically like the start of grooming someone else the way I was groomed to be like, hey, how are we going to react to this? Now, it only like happened once one night and I had thankfully enough conscience to be like, I can't feel good about this. And Mm -hmm. I just didn't invite her out again. And I think I told my boyfriend like, oh, yeah, she freaked like she's not into it. Not a thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I did. And that's that's a hard thing for me to recognize that I could have victimized or been the cause of someone else's victimization. But I think it's like you said earlier, where when you are in that mindset, and when you are being abused, like, Obviously, yes, like indirectly you could have been, but I think that you were in that state where like that was another way to even abuse you, you know, like the mental games of we'll bring someone else in and do this. And then also it's like that mental game of, well, if I bring someone else in and they want to do it, then see, it shows that it's not that bad. Like I'm more empowered, whatever. You know, I think it's a way to justify things as well. And I don't have credentials to to analyze what people are thinking, but I can just like see that that's what I would think is going on in that situation and like the mental justifications. And I would not blame yourself at all in doing that or or anything like that. But I always want to know because I know there are certain situations where you'll see on TikTok, for example, people are like, I was almost trafficked today. And they'll share a story of why they think that they were almost trafficked. And sometimes, you know, I think it could definitely be a trafficking situation. But I also think that sometimes it happens with your friends. Most of the time, it happens with people you know in real life and people that are, you know, just bringing you along. I'd love to know your opinion on this. Sometimes you think trafficking is, you know, yeah, you're going to a bar and maybe you're going to a strip club, but it's like in a small town and it's dirty and it's all like (laughs) low class, whatever. Like people have that in their head. I think people don't realize that it happens a lot of times in rooms with a lot of money, a lot of wealth, with a lot of powerful men 
and with a lot of powerful people. And that's still just because it's high class people, wealthy people, rich, famous people. If your friend is inviting you, doesn't mean that that's not what that is. You know, and I see that a lot with like escorting, for example, or like escorting slash like prostitution with like very wealthy men. Mm -hmm. Do you notice that a lot of girls today, especially girls around like my age, like I'm 27. So like my age, a little younger than me, even older than me, they'll say like, oh, well, you're just going to dinner with them. Like you're just, you know, that's all you're doing. And like, look at the bag he bought me. And all I did was go to dinner with him. Do you think that that is like leading up to being trafficked? Or what would you say to girls that that's kind of like they're bragging about that in order to make money today? Because I know personally people that do that. And it always scares me so much. Like I don't want to go to anything that they're going to. I don't want to, you know, because I know that that can be a really slippery slope. And I know that it's never just a bag, even if that's what it is the first time. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I know that was kind of a long winded question and answer to your last comment. But what are your thoughts on that, like empowerment culture of like being an escort and just going to dinner and all of that? One of the things you said in there, I can answer very clearly. A lot of it, there's nuance, right? How old are you when you're doing this? Are you 18 or 28? There is a Mm -hmm. massive difference in your neuromaturation at 18 from 28. I'm Mm -hmm. not saying one is okay and one is not okay. Everything is nuanced here, but there's a lot of things that need to come into play. However, you made a comment in there like, oh, all I had to do is go to dinner and he bought me this bag. So The stages of grooming, one of the stages, the second stage, is building trust and filling needs. So that Mm -hmm. trust building, trafficking doesn't happen. I don't want to say never, never say never. But of all the survivors, of all the agencies, of all the people I've ever worked with, there is like 1% stories about trafficking that exist with a stranger abduction, somebody being snatched from a bar or a street or whatever it is. 99% is someone they knew, loved, and or trusted. Mm -hmm. So is it always a family member or a gym teacher or something like that? No, because you can grow to know, love, and or trust someone online. They -hmm. don't just show up in your life snatch you and then throw you in a brothel. That's that's not the trajectory. The trajectory is who out there has a need and what are the needs? Who out there is vulnerable? And these vulnerabilities can be really obvious. They can be marginalization, homelessness, drug addiction. Like that's where people kind of latch onto the low class sort of thing is like, okay, well, there's a drug addict. And when we think of a drug addict, we think of someone who is, you know, maybe homeless and on the streets and struggling and that. Okay, well, that's an obvious vulnerability. When you build trust with that person and fill a need, you might supply them with their drug or maybe supply them with a rehab, whether, you know, formal or informal, and that will build trust with them because you're there. And if they slip, then you won't be mad. You'll just help them again. This is building trust. It's over a process of time. Now, if you're taking a college girl, for example, somebody who has enough money, whether it's because they can access student loans or their family has money to attend college, because these days college is not accessible to everyone. What are their needs or vulnerabilities? You're not thinking of the person on the street who has sores on their face and dirty clothes and they're homeless. You're thinking of, you know, a cute, hot, whatever, put together college girl who maybe wants a nice bag, for example. And they can't necessarily afford that because they're on student loans or kind of barely making ends meet or just living the student life. So Mm -hmm. what if you don't have to do anything? You get a free meal and a free bag out of it. Like, I just like your company, right? I don't get a lot of attention these days. I work by myself. I'm a businessman. I travel all the time. I don't have time for a long-term relationship. I don't have the focus to put a lot of emotional energy into someone. So it's transactional, right? I need you to make me feel good. And in turn, I'm going to pay for whether it's your bags and your shoes or an entire apartment or your school or whatever it is. And when you're a college kid and you're like, wait, all I have to do is eat free food and someone's going to cover all of my living expenses? Like, Mm -hmm. sign me up. Why would I say no to that? So if you think of the example I gave you from my own story, I wasn't necessarily the homeless drug addict and I certainly wasn't the college kid who wanted a fancy bag. I was somewhere in the middle. And what happened was 
I had a need for power, to feel powerful because I, I had felt like it had been taken away from me. So what did he do? Hey, you want to be my business partner, right? Mm-hmm. You want to have some power. You want to stand beside me instead of rung down from me. And then once he'd built that trust, he'd filled those needs. Then it was, oh, do you want everyone to know you've been stealing from them? Yep. So you flipped the script. And in there, he isolated me from my friends and made sure the people I hung out with was his people. So if I had any questions or anything came up where I started questioning things like, oh, is this going too far or anything? I didn't really have my friends to call on because he was kind of it at that time. So go back to the college girl example who just has to have dinner for a purse. That may be the case. I can't guarantee that every single time it'll turn into something else. What I can tell you is that sounds like grooming to me. That sounds like someone who is working to build trust, to fill needs. See, it's just dinner. And the first time it will probably be just dinner, right? And the second Mm -hmm. time it may just be dinner and maybe a nightcap, right? Depends how quickly they're going to move. People online, when they meet usually younger kids, it's oh, hey, I can send you gaming tokens. I'm not super up on video games. My kids are really young. But like Roblox tokens or something, right? They're going to build trust. And then eventually it's like, oh, this person's really cool. Like, you know, they know I'm really good at this game. And when I do really well, they supply me with tokens or whatever it is. And then when they say, hey, you know, it's getting really annoying to try and talk on this. Do you want to move over to Snap and talk on Snap? Then kids like, yeah, well, I already know this. Like they're a cool person. Like I'm going to move over there. So then they may be like, Hey, I'd love to see a picture of you. Like we've been talking for so long. I've only ever seen your avatar or your, you know, one pic. Can you send me another one? They don't Mm -hmm. just like pop up and say, yo, dude, send nudes. Like they work on this and it is well worth it to them to do that work, to spend that time, whether it takes days, weeks, or months, depending on the perpetrator and the victim, because the amount of payoff from building that bond, from building that trauma bond, from getting that person in and having Mm -hmm. material against them if they ever try and leave or whatever it is, it pays dividends, which is why we know that most people are trafficked by someone they know, love, or trust because the trafficker makes sure of it first. Mm -hmm. I know. That's so scary. It literally makes me like sick thinking about, you know, kids on the internet. And nowadays, though, so I know we talked about kind of like the escorting and the going to dinner and all of this stuff. What about like OnlyFans, for example? It puts the power back, quote unquote, into the woman or the person that's running the account because, you know, they can decide what to post. If you want to subscribe, subscribe. I'm putting it out there. Do you think that's empowering or do you think that's just another way to get groomed? I think that is a very big question. Yeah. (laughs) And it is not a black or white answer. I cannot say, yes, that's empowering. It gives the power back to the woman because I can tell you factually, we know pimps are on there and they run several socials and keep all the money or most of the money. So it is not a, a safe haven for sexually empowered women. I can tell you that right now. Are there some sexually empowered women on there who are not coerced or manipulated by another person or a pimp? I'm sure of it. That goes back to then the question, how old are they? And where is their brain and neuromaturation and understanding the consequence of action and having critical agency to make informed decisions? Because 18-year-olds, I'm sorry, but they do not have a fully developed brain, no matter how much they think they do. Mm. Now, if we draw back, you know, a little bit more macro to that perspective, we need to look at is using your body in a sexual manner to make money? Is it empowering? Is it truthfully empowering? Now, I think that is both an individual answer, but it is also an answer that needs to be looked at from a biopsychosocial perspective and a macro lens, because are you not being coerced if the only reason you're on there is because you can't make rent any other way. Mm. Is that not a coercion by capitalism? Like, And there's a lot of people who argue, well, we all have jobs. Are we not all coerced by capitalism? Yes, to some extent. But when we look at the commercial sex industry and we look at it from a wide lens of who is selling themselves and who is the consumer, It is a vast majority of vulnerable populations who are selling themselves. 
So marginalized populations, LGBTQIA, women and girls, Aboriginal populations, lower income. What we don't see, and to put it very bluntly, is a lot of wealthy white men. If this job was so empowering and such a great way to make easy money, who do you think would be at the helm of it? They're not selling themselves. They're the consumers more often than not. So I think we need to look at that and look at the pathways that we see people entering prostitution. Because whether you call it escorting or OnlyFans or whatever, these are all sort of fancy names for the commercial sex industry. The only thing that differs is when you get into trafficking, there is a third party who is coercing and benefiting. So someone who is just, you know, self-employed, doing their own thing, they're not necessarily being trafficked, but they are engaging in the commercial sex industry. Now, someone who's being trafficked, also engaging in the commercial sex industry, though, under a different circumstance. Mm -hmm. But if we look at the industry as a whole, I think that's where the big debate comes in about is sex work work? Should we be touting it as empowering and therefore decriminalizing or legalizing it to idealized, create more safety? Or do we need to look at it as in places that have decrim or legalized it, decriminalized or legalized it? What have been the repercussions there Mm. to the vulnerable populations, to the sellers of sex? And How does that compare or not compare to North America and what would happen here? Like when I say it's a big question, it's a big question. I can say I did my master's thesis on examining the commercial sex industry through the lens of consent, because I think that's sort of the crux of the issue. We have to understand consent when it comes to sex. So what is true consent? And most of the research out there either looks at someone in the commercial sex industry as someone willing to be there, so a self-employed seller of sex, or someone who is trafficked and unwilling to be there. However, more often than not, these people fall on a continuum, or they start out self-employed and end up, you know, pimped, or they start out pimped and then have been pimped from the age of 12 to the age of 27, and then they go out on their own. Well, are they empowered, or have they been pimped for 15 years? There's so much nuance in there. Yeah, I think it is a really hard question. And it's one of those where I always get so sad when I see like anyone, but I think what I mainly see is younger girls when they're saying like, get your bag, go on OnlyFans and start, you know, posting like it's so great. Like, look at how much money I made. Sex is a big deal. I'm not saying like having sex with someone, like if you're having sex with in a relationship or whatever. It could mean like, you know, some people can have one night stands and it means nothing. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying like sex is this like huge thing that whatever. I'm saying that your body, though, when you sell your body, that is different than just like working at a corporate job. And you have more research and have a degree and all that. So you can probably explain the nuances more. But I just think when you are when you don't have that bodily autonomy anymore, like that is a big deal. That is way different than being able to quit a job and find another one when it comes to, you know, like you were saying, like, well, don't you do that at like corporations or when you're working and aren't you like coerced by capitalism? I do think it's different. And I think also when young girls are doing that, let's say you do that, you start making a bunch of money. There are people making hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, millions of dollars a month doing OnlyFans. You become adjusted to that lifestyle. So, you know, it's not like you can't pay your rent. Like, yeah, you have money to pay your rent. You're rich, but you're so adjusted to that lifestyle. You can't stop. You know, it's like your level now is way up here. Like, if you stop, you can't afford those three cars that you bought and the multi million dollar house that you bought. And, you know, you're feeding your family off of this or your parents are living off of you. Like, you have to support your lifestyle now. So you have to keep doing this. And so I think that it doesn't matter your level of income, like there's always a way to feel trapped in it. And so it just makes me sad when I see girls being like, look how much money I made on OnlyFans. And then 17 year olds are like, I can't wait till I turn 18 and can join this app. And I wonder what the age is. I have no idea on the stats of this, but I wonder what the most popular age is on apps like that. Because I would guarantee that it's a lot of 18 to 25 year olds, like younger girls, like guarantee it's probably 18, 19, 20 year olds are the most popular people on that app. It's not 50 year olds, you know, like I would imagine. 
And I think it's because, like you said, once you reach a certain level of maturity, you realize that sex and your body means something like it's not, you know, just this thing that you can kind of trade off for money or you want to trade off for money. So I don't know, it just makes me always so sad when I see that on the internet or when I see that it's not that big of a deal, because I think it is, like you said, I feel like we could literally talk about this for so long. I know you've done your whole thesis on this, but yeah, that's my rant on that. I think you made such a great point there. A, the point about the age, there's a reason that, you know, 17 or 18 to 27, 28 year old women are some of the most targeted, whether it's for escorting or, or, you know, OnlyFans or anything like that, like right on the border of legal. So people don't have to live in the shame of, you know, darker needs and all of that, even though that's a whole other topic of how that's becoming normalized. But it's an adult. They're an adult. They made their own choices. Well, cool. That 18 year old who just showed up to your hotel room that you ordered like DoorDash. Guess what? She didn't just drop on this earth today on her 18th birthday. And I promise you, more often than not, you're not her first customer today on her 18th birthday. She was doing this yesterday when she was 17, right? Mm -hmm. Or she was groomed, whether by hypersexualization, gender norms, you know, a person, whatever it is, groomed into this seeming like a good idea. And I think when we think of it as a dichotomy, as either good or bad, right or wrong, prudish or sexually empowered, it is when you only are speaking to the people who are on those, you know, ends of the continuum and everyone who is in the trenches in the middle, they just get forgotten. And Mm -hmm. so those of us who said yes to the commercial sex industry initially, like myself, and then was like, oh, not this. Like, I don't want this. This isn't what I meant. Oh, now I can't get out. Well, I didn't fall on either of those extremes. So there was no voice for me. I wasn't a victim enough victim, but I wasn't an empowered enough, you know, sex worker. I, I wasn't anything. So when we speak only to the dichotomy, we lose everybody in the middle. And that is a lot of people. It is the majority of people. So that's where, you know, I think one of the most important things we can do is just be willing to have these conversations, be willing to touch on the subject of, is this empowering or not? And not expect that the end of a, you know, one hour segment, we've come up with the solution. And now that we think we have the solution, we're going to try and shove it down everyone else's throats because we've solved it. You've not solved it. What we need to do is have the conversation, ensure that the conversation has both, you know, I think emotional and academic strains to it. So we're not just talking about it from a cold academic, well, the books say, the facts Mm -hmm. say, but we're not just talking about it from a, well, my experience was this and therefore this is the only experience that exists. And make sure that the conversation ends in a place where it starts more conversations, where people go, huh, I was always like, people should have rights over their body. Sex work is work. And now I'm kind of going, huh, it's not that simple. Great. Talk more about it with your friends, please. Like talk more about it because that's how you get people who are lost in the trenches to be able to put their hand up and say, I need help. And I believe Mm -hmm. that you are a safe person that might be able to help me. Or there are safe Mm -hmm. people out there that might be able to help me. Instead of some of us who lived with the amount of shame and stigma and continue to and will continue to because we're not empowered enough sex workers or victim enough victims. The rest yeah. of us need help too. We need to be part of the conversation. We're the crux of the conversation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, this was such an important message. Like, I'm so glad I got to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Where can they find you? And also, what are some resources you want to share if someone does need help that they can go to? So you can find me, the brand I work under, the name I work under in Canada is The Laughing Survivor. So you can find me on Instagram as The Laughing Survivor or www.thelaughingsurvivor.com. Now, I did co-found an anti-human trafficking nonprofit based out of the States when I lived in the States, and it's called Uprising. So you can find Uprising at www.uprisingyo, that's uprisingwyo.org. And Uprising's website has a plethora of resources both for parents and resources for adolescents. It has the human trafficking hotline. There's a human trafficking hotline both in America and in Canada. You can learn more about what is trafficking, what falls under the umbrella of trafficking, you know, 
What do I need to know about it as a parent? What do I need to know about it as an adolescent? How do I look out for my friends? Like all of that information is on Uprising's website. So please go and check that out. If you want to learn more from me or my story, check out my Instagram or my website or reach out to me. I do try and answer as many questions and whatnot that I get as I can. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's basically the best way to get all the resources into people that, that we can without bombarding them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey there, my name is Renee Rena, and I am the mom friend you have always wanted. I am also the host of the Mom Room Podcast. We publish two episodes per week, a co-hosted episode on Tuesdays and a solo episode on Thursdays. Popular topics include pooping and having sex after giving birth. I have a solo episode where I talk about not sharing a bed with my husband and why that's okay. I hope you'll tune in to these conversations every week. Join us on Instagram at the mom room podcast and start to feel a little less alone in this crazy thing called motherhood. Hey, my name is Lovan Roomf and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here. And vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.